Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi everyone and uh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast which uh, by popular demand today is about livestock as we will be going forward. Uh, it's me, it's Garrison, uh, and we're talking about species of sheep. Uh, don't, not really, we're not talking about species of sheep, much not to yet. my disappointment. Not yet, but that will be coming. We're going to be getting into cleanse, texels, uh, mules, I can't, that kind of thing, big sheep stuff. But no, today we're actually uh, joined by John, and John has uh, been subjected to my weird introduction but we're not we're not talking about sheep today we're talking about active transport infrastructure and we're talking about how cities tend to build that in certain communities and not in others so welcome to the show john yeah thanks for having me i i'll say that my my partner would have been overjoyed if the podcast was actually about species of sheep so <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's tired of hearing me talk about bikes i'm sure so but here we are um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm John Stalen. I'm an assistant professor at uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Great. Yeah. Um, so I think to start off with, if if you could kind of outline uh, what sort of like, I guess, I guess people might not be familiar at all with bike infrastructure, certainly um, if they live in some parts of the US or like more rural areas, and sort of what it looks like and what cities have been doing in the last few years, building bike infrastructure, and then how that relates to the, I guess, the income disparities within cities? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big question. Uh, something that I tackled in my book, uh, which came out in 2019, but then I haven't, I haven't kept up with it quite as much. I've been trying to start work on, working on other projects, but, you know, I keep, I keep, tabs on things a little bit. Um, I mean, basically, if we're talking about the, the standard rundown of infrastructure, the, the, I would say, 
the most common thing that people think about and probably the most common thing that's built in part because it's quite cheap, uh, especially over the, say, the last 20 years is the, the bike lane. Uh, you know, a bike lane is usually about three to five feet wide uh, and it's in it's to the far right of the roadway if you're in the United States or, you know, if you're driving on the right. Um, tends to be where glass collects, tends to be where car doors are. Um, it, and so that nevertheless was, you know, very common, uh, in places that were building bicycle infrastructure, that's what was being built. Um, in, I would say the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a push to do more what people might call Dutch style, uh, protected bike lanes. Um, either they're protected by a buffer of, uh, kind of plastic posts that don't prevent an emergency vehicle from kind of getting where it needs to go, but also don't prevent drivers from just driving into the bike lane, really. Um, So you'll see those. And then, you know, parking protected bike lanes. So the protected bike lanes sort of became the big demand from uh, bicycle infrastructure planning practitioners, especially in cities like Portland, you know, San Francisco, Oakland, Chicago, New York City, et cetera, et cetera, something that was actually protected by a curb. Um, usually, really, usually it's still uh, like a, some kind of a plastic curb, right? Or cars, right? And you're not seeing a lot of, um, you know, concrete or brick curb work like you'll see in, in the Netherlands or something like that. And then interestingly enough, another piece of infrastructure that there was a funny kind of mea culpa or not mea culpa, but um, a uh, reevaluation of it was the Shero, uh, which is just a sort of a Chevron symbol in the middle of a car lane intended to remind drivers that cyclists are allowed to be there, uh, but sort of put cyclists in the location where they would sort of garner the most hatred and there was a recent recent editorial from Dave Snyder of the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. He was a big big pioneer just in general bicycle infrastructure. I interviewed him for my dissertation, and he uh, he talked about how that they don't work. That that was a mistake. It was a mistake, kind of um, splitting the difference, making it seem like you didn't have to take any space away from cars in order to fit bikes into the roadway. So I don't know if that's kind of more yeah. than you wanted from that. No, no, that's great because I think a lot of folks might not have seen all these different things. Certainly, like uh, if if you're like me and you ride your bike every day, you notice each of these different things, and some of them make you feel safer, some of them don't, and, and some of them are just kind of tokenistic. I think a lot of this kind of gets to a bigger discussion, which which is one maybe we can touch on, which is like who the city is for. Uh, when we're building cities in this country, certainly it seems like we built them around cars, with with a few exceptions, like older cities and stuff. And increasingly, like if you ask for space that and you are not a car, uh, then you know like, to include people wanting to live on the streets, right? Like cars have free places to go at night, but people don't. And so, like th- this reallocation of space, I think gets to a bigger question, which is, yeah, maybe something you could speak to. Yeah. So, I mean, the question of, I think you could think of who, both in terms of the mode of transport, right? It's very car dominant uh, society, right? Um, And car 
car driving is even on the rise in places like Copenhagen, right? There's kind of a lot of fretting among bicycle advocates in, in Copenhagen about um, the rise of car usage. Um, so there's the, the, the sort of the mode of transport, but, you know, cars aren't people, right? As you sort of pointed out just then. And then, so there's another layer to it that intersects with it, which is cities being increasingly sort of oriented towards attracting higher income residents, right? Kind of creating an attractive urban environment. There's a, there's a kind of an intersection with the interest in attracting um, kind of high-tech or creative or knowledge-intensive types of jobs, right? Your software programmers. You know, I think it was um, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. I use this in lectures all the time. He said something like, um, you can't be for a high-tech, a creative city economy and not be pro-bike, right? So there's this, there's this idea that, you know, may be a little bit spurious or it might be kind of um, loose causality, but there's this idea that the kinds of workers that you want in your city that are either going to take high paying jobs and increase the property tax base or themselves create new startups, entrepreneurial energy, arts, culture, and, uh, and, things like that, right? That they are, they're attracted by bicycle infrastructure or bicycling or bicycle culture in, in, in some respects. Um, so there's that, that kind of, the, the, the irony of course, is that those workers, you know, guilty, I have a car, right? Typically bring cars with them. Right. And so Yes, maybe they don't want to use them on a daily basis. Like I don't use my car on a daily basis. I don't use my car to get to work, right? Um, but they, you know, are often kind of having it both ways, right? In a, in a lot of ways, in terms of you know, buildings will be built with garages, right? And that's only recently starting to be eroded, right? As just a you know a one to one parking ratio at a at a transit connected uh, building, yeah. Um, so when we're talking about it, the combination of these two things, right, like affluent areas or cities trying to attract affluent people and cities trying to build bike infrastructure, um, something that I've observed where I live, which is San Diego, is that we've built a lot of bike lanes, but only connecting privileged communities to places where people do high income work. And it seems like increasingly like riding your bike safely is a privilege uh, that's, that's only afforded to a certain group of people. Is that something that's broader than just in, in my town? I'd say so. I mean, I think you see this in, um, in where I did a lot of my research, the San Francisco Bay area. I also did research in, in Philadelphia and, and Detroit and Austin as well. That's not in the book, but yeah, that's, it's common. And there's a few different, there's kind of a, there's a degree of, uh, cumulative causality, as we would say in economic geography, right? You have it going back to say the 1990s, you had bicycle advocates, primarily, uh, recreational, primarily middle-class, yeah. largely white recreational cyclists, or, and you start to see, um, participants in bicycle advocacy organizations also being kind of bicycle commuters. Um, the kinds of jobs that were 
growing in urban centers in the 1990s and 2000s, or, you know, the, the first decade of this millennium, right? Um, are the kinds of, you know, if not high-tech, uh, the sort of uh, professional, technical type of employment, right? Growing in urban centers. Um, and there's relatively affordable housing in gentrifying neighborhoods that makes it feasible and and desirable actually that you could you could um you know find a fairly affordable house and be able to bike to work right two to three miles right rather than the commute in from the suburbs or the commute out from the urban center to jobs at the suburbs right um so the I think that you get a lot of the initial energy around the bicycle movement. If you look at critical mass, if you look at the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition in its early days, again, these are the things I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the sort of the political mobilization is around making those types of journeys uh, easier, uh, more doable, right? You also have the phenomenon where the neighborhoods that are getting gentrified in this time are your sort of classic innermost streetcar suburbs developed around 100 years ago, um, fairly walkable themselves. They have a mix of commercial and residential. They aren't, by and large, industrial neighborhoods, right? The industrial neighborhoods where you still have a lot of truck traffic, where industry begat more industry or deindustrialization really hollowed out the economic base, where you have you know, large roadways, you have, you know, disinvestment and uh, kind of a mix of small retail, et cetera, et cetera, Um, lower income population. Uh, Those were not, um, those were not areas where they were, that were attracting the kinds of people who would be listened to when they're demanding bicycle infrastructure, right? Uh, there are still lots of cyclists in those neighborhoods um, in a place like East Oakland uh, or um, uh, North Philadelphia or something like that, right? Where there are a lot of people who ride bicycles, uh, but they don't, they're not organized politically uh, yeah. under the sort of the block of, of, of cyclists. Um, and so there's this sort of paradox or in the, the way that I came around to this project was I was working in a bike shop in Philadelphia and I was sort of one of those uh, white hipsters on fixies, right? At the same time, I spent a lot of my day speaking Spanish, uh, talking with and helping people fix their bikes mostly Latin American immigrants who were working as dishwashers or delivering food, buying bikes at Walmart because it's what they could afford, even though they knew that they were crap, they just couldn't afford anything better, trying to get the most out of those bikes. Um, And so there's this funny dichotomy. On the one hand, it's like you have the cool bike arty creative scene that is sort of trying to be encouraged maybe. And on the other hand, a lot of the people who are actually making do um, on bicycles are not sort of part of that vision, I guess, for for the city, right? Um, 
when I think about things in spatial terms as well, right, if you imagine going back to the journeys to work from a sort of close-in residential neighborhood that is experiencing a lot of turnover, a lot of middle class, you know, mostly white, but not necessarily exclusively white in migrants, um, the types of journeys that a lot of, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take Durham, for example, where I live now, which is um, not, there's not a lot of good bicycle infrastructure. There's a little, there's not a lot of good bicycle infrastructure, but there's some job growth in the downtown area. There's certainly a lot of job growth in the sort of the, the suburbs. Um, but in terms of the kinds of jobs that, um, you know, working class jobs that are being created at Amazon fulfillment centers, those are at the urban periphery, right? They're not places that even in a, kind of a a gentrifying neighborhood, even if bicycle infrastructure were created, the sort of the directionality of the the feasible commute kind of runs against, uh, the feasible bicycle commute sort of runs against the very kind of spread out and scattered um, commutes in the sort of retail, wholesale, warehousing, manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, the, the sectors that are experiencing job sprawl rather than a right. sort of a concentrated, um, concentrated job growth in, in the sort of the urban center, right? So that's another aspect to it as well. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bike advocacy is very interesting to me, right? Like I was a bike messenger, uh, I, I was a bike racer. Like these, I've made my living riding a bike. I've also just ridden my bike to get to work. And 
bike advocacy really hasn't reflected a broad swath of cyclists for a very long time. Do you think that's why we don't see like better infrastructure in some some of these like deindustrializing areas, for instance? And does that lead directly to it being more dangerous? Like I you would be the person to ask are there statistics to show that like it, it's more dangerous to ride your bike. So I'll say a couple things. Um yeah. the uh the 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 directionality or the causality is a little bit complicated. I would say certainly there was some evidence that bicycle advocates weren't in in the early days. And there was a big sort of cultural shift in bicycle advocacy in the 1990s. Part of the 1990s, you have a lot of cyclists who are actually opposed to bicycle infrastructure. <laughs> we still um, have, they are still a, a loud uh, boomerish voice in San Diego. Yeah, exactly. The vehicular cyclists, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain that? Sure. So vehicular cyclists, um, it, it was a philosophy expounded by uh, John Forrester. I might have his book right here. Yeah. Uh, in the book, and it's not here, in, in the book Effective Cycling, um, where it was the idea was that cyclists should be riding like cars, right? Which means riding fast, center of the lane. Um, behaving exactly like a car. Uh, and they were very opposed to any infrastructure that would sort of cre- be created, especially for bicyclists, huh. on the basis, uh, which there was maybe some slight truth to this, that, that cyclists would be banned from roads that didn't have dedicated bicycle infrastructure. Okay, There's a little bit of concern that was... There, there was, I, th- I think I remember reading about a little bit of actual talk among legislators and planners that bicyclists would be kept off of main roads. And I think to their, to their credit, they saw the creation of bicycle infrastructure at that time as basically designed to get cyclists out of the way of motorists, right? And so it was mainly to advance the interests of motorists, right? Uh, but they were very hostile to um, they're very hostile to a sort of a Dutch style model, which like, you know, these were guys who like to ride fast and like you don't you can't ride fast in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, uh, not not everyone's physically able nor really wants to go 40 miles an hour on a road next to cars. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so it was. Very much around a strong, fit, confident cyclist who knew all the laws of the road, rode really yeah. fast, was very assertive. Um, it obviously lent itself towards uh, a sort of a, a boomer type, right? Um, yeah. A sort of adventurous yeah. type. Um, and it was very much that we that bicycle advocates should advance the interests of cyclists not try to grow the number of people cycling right and so the shift towards that maybe the critical mass moment is not the only thing but this is that's sort of a good moment to kind of tag it to the 1992 uh first critical mass era but you know earth day vehicle for a small planet all of this sort of growing interest in in bicycling yeah. um the shift explain? towards more people should be doing this. 
Yeah. Can you explain critical mass to people who haven't like participated? Because I think it's quite a unique and interesting phenomenon. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, critical mass began in San Francisco in, I think the first critical mass was 1992. Um, and it was began sort of as like a group of people working, you know, broadly working office jobs who were sort of kind of culturally anarchistic or, you know, um, had these sort of anarchist or situationist kind of ideas um, and who were um, kind of organizing amongst themselves to ride home as a group, right? And they started getting this idea of sort of having these monthly ride together um happenings right the they call it, they they didn't call them protests and they weren't organized rides they were um uh sort of rolling festivals was the idea i think the first the first name that they came up with which mercifully didn't stick was like the commute clot right so it was also about kind of jamming up the the regularity of the friday evening commute so it would be like the first friday of every month uh, at commute time right um some some of these i think still happen in portland oh yeah yeah it's it's the critical mass still happens um there's a you know one of the chapters in my book i sort of trace this arc of critical mass through to the more kind of bike party oriented yeah, ex- exactly the, um, exactly the slow roll type of model which yeah. i think is interesting because it's a little bit it's consciously less confrontational it's not held at at a time that would clog up um sure clog up yeah. evening traffic uh it's designed to attract kind of families people who aren't trying to have confrontations with drivers or police right one of yeah. the things that sort of really put um put bicycle infrastructure on the agenda in san francisco was this mass arrest of critical mass in 1997 um supposedly because the mayor of san francisco willie brown at the time got stuck in one in his limo and was like furious and so asked the police to crack down next time it was a huge uh, it was it backfired massively politically but it also created this opening for the the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, which actually was an organization, San Fr- uh, Critical Mass was not an organization, right? It gave them this opportunity to say, well, what cyclists want is, you know, to actually build out the bike plan that supposedly exists, but nobody's been doing anything about, right? Um, so, I mean, that's probably maybe more than you wanted to know, but the sort of that, that arc of Critical Mass as this sort of countercultural moment that created this opening for a more formal bicycle uh, planning uh, and advocacy organization or a set of organizations to emerge. Right. Um, and maybe it's unfair. I think I'd probably do it in the book. It's a little bit unfair probably to call it a kind of depoliticization, but there was certainly a, a degree of kind of like explicit politics of sort of reclaiming the city more broadly sure. from a kind of left perspective yeah. that does disappear somewhat in the sort of the rhetoric of the bike movement. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely lost some of that like radical edge where these types of these types of, you know, when 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 like 100 or 200 people on bikes take over streets in Portland every once in a while, it is way more in the form of like 
a big party. It's like it's yeah. it's it's like it's like a it's like a roving block party. It it does not have that same level of like yeah, almost like situationist creating a happening or creating a situation that 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 affects the regular politics and affects the regular way that the city functions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that being said, the the sort of the successors like uh, bike party in San Jose was a huge one. And they, that bike party model kind of spread throughout California were often much bigger than critical maps. Right. Um, sure, sure. A lot of times more diverse uh, as well. Right. So there's there's a really interesting kind of politics around. Is the is the politics in the sort of explicit slogans or is the politics in sort of like showing people that there is a kind of collectivity that they might be part of simply by virtue of like moving through urban space in a different way. And for a lot of people, it was their first time riding a bike in the city because they were so afraid of cars otherwise, right? You yeah, have the yeah. safety in numbers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely, um, I know for a lot of people that was the case. Like I've done some critical masses. I mean, in the UK, we had Reclaim the Streets as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is like a similar vibe. I remember in the early, I guess the first decade of this century, like um, there would be critical mass rides before anti-G8 protests. Like I, I remember uh, in Octorada in Scotland and things, or not in Octorada, but before that, and like before other G8 protests, there'd be mass rides. And it, it's a very different scene to like bike advocacy now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you saw this a little bit with like the Occupy movement, uh, the at least my experience of the um, the sort of early wave of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014 with the killing of Trayvon Martin. Um, there were a lot the the bicycles seemed like an intuitive protest mode for many people. And that's probably sort of some of the cultural political tools of critical mass that sort of surface here and there. Um, but I, I think for the 20th anniversary, uh, Chris Carlson, who was one of the early organizers called it, uh, talked about critical mass all over the world and that San Francisco felt kind of like the hole in the middle of the donut, right? Like it sort of created this reverberation, but then it had actually withered to a degree in in the center and often the narrative is well you're you're getting like you're winning right so critical mass is no longer necessary because you're getting bike lanes you're getting um you know you're getting investment you're getting attention from planners etc cetera, etc cetera, right obviously yeah the the gains whatever they are are pretty kind of geographically circumscribed no, and that kind of relates back to how we kind of started by talking about how you know, some cities are putting more development into bike infrastructure, but how it's being developed is not actually serving people who like, like have to use a bike to commute because they yeah. don't own a car and they can't afford a car. Like it's, it's, it's getting used to people who actually already have a lot of resources. And like an interesting case in point in this is uh, the Beltline in Atlanta, which like started off in the, you know, as, as an idea in 1999 with wanting to create like a giant loop using like public transit, uh, having, having rail going around the city, having bike, having bike paths going all around the city, um, being able to like connect the city with these, with these like spaces, uh, for like green space and affordable housing. And instead the project kind of manifested as this, like, like, is this project that was had up by real estate companies to replace a whole bunch of low income 
neighborhoods with massive amounts of like expensive restaurants and luxury condos mm. and you know putting putting the belt line and as a path to to create these like expensive gentrify like gentrifying um areas around the city and it's how like e th these ideas can start off so good and then when they get uh like you know actually done it's manifested in a way that is actually like not helpful to people who need this type of thing at all yeah yeah i mean the the belt line i don't know enough about it i've read i've read a little bit of the sort of academic literature and i've been there um and it is really kind of interesting how it is this it it is this huge investment in the reconversion of infrastructure right to sort yeah, yeah. of restore the value of the land surrounding it right sort of old rail old industrial infrastructure and that's something that i don't think that you can you're ever you know people there are studies here and there that try to demonstrate the kind of the economic value of bicycle infrastructure the contribution to tax tax receipts et cetera, et cetera. But it gets pretty hard to parse the causality, um, especially when you're, you know, especially when compared to something that is really sort of overhauling the space, right? I don't, it, you know, the belt, belt line is, it's, I think probably it's success from a sort of uh, a financial perspective has to do with it being, a multi-use path, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather yeah. than it being bicycle infrastructure, um, sure. and sort of it being being framed as this much broader type of thing, right? Rather than um, a bike lane on a street, right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not great to ride down, like at least on the weekend, because you'll just be slaloming. <laughs> no, this full of full of yeah, people. Yeah. It's full of like, like it's, I when I when I when I was visiting last year during the start of summer, I went with a friend to the area by Ponce City Market, which is kind of a great example of the gentrifying force of yeah. of the Belt Line. But also, like, yeah, there's people who's people who are trying to ride bikes around, but there's like kids on roller skates everywhere. There's yeah. it's 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 pretty packed. It's getting it's it's getting pretty pretty warm. Um, but there's other parts that are like you know that are that are. Uh, more isolated where it is much more of like a of like a commute path um right. but it's, it's interesting it just like it like weaves in and out of these like retail and luxury apartment um you know pop-ups restaurants really... all along it exactly and, mm -hmm. and all, all that stuff is 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 relative is like relatively new for all the stuff that mm -hmm. is like specifically s surrounding the surrounding like the construction of the belt line yeah and i mean the um i think that you Maybe you see this just a little bit with like, you know, the direction that I've taken this, the thinking about it is more the sort of the types of urban strategies that have begun to incorporate bicycle infrastructure, right? Or yeah. just active transportation more generally as the kind of big driving forces rather than like, is this bike lane here causing gentrification? It's usually, it's often the other way around, right? Bicycle yeah. infrastructure sort of emerges as a result of gentrification, right? Or there, as a result of the in-migration of people who are going to be listened to, right? Because yeah, of yeah. their status, because of their income, uh, because they have kind of existing 
um, capacities in in organizing for these types of things, right? Um, it's I think what's interesting is one of the one of the positions I've sort of come around to, right, is thinking more about um, not like should we do bicycle infrastructure because it might kind of create the perception of gentrification or cause gentrification or something like that. And instead, like, you know, what, one of the things that gentrification results from when you're thinking about amenities that sort of lead to the revalorization of, of urban space is that they are in some way special. Right. And so if the question is the specialness of this particular place, you know, Garrison, as you said, what makes a, um, you know, uh, the kinds of places where you can safely ride a bike are fairly unique, right? They're not well distributed, right? And so from my perspective, it's sort of the more routine they become as an include as, as, you know, including them into urban space, the less special the places where they are built become, yeah. right? And it's, yeah. and so routine that, it wouldn't be worth mentioning, right? It's like mentioning that there is a sewer line, right? <laughs> like it's like mentioning that it has connection to city water, which okay, yeah, in you know, at the at the urban edge where I live, um, I don't live at the urban edge, but in at the urban edge in the southeast, um, you know, there isn't always connection to city water. Um yeah, like trying to get it normalized yeah. to the point where it's like obvious that it's something that is like a part of the city. It's like, yeah, like, of, right. of, of course like, it's, it's just as yeah. normal as like a sidewalk or a road or like a yeah. power line. Which yeah, to when be I, fair, I don't have any sidewalks on my street and most of the streets <laughs> around me have a sidewalk on, on one side only. Portland, <laughs> Portland also has very, has very few sidewalks. Yeah. 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 We, we do have those. Yeah. I lived in Belgium for a while when I was racing and like, I lived in a town that was very much just like in, lots of Belgium is shitty gray coal mining towns. Uh, I love Belgium, but this is a thing. And, and like, yeah, they would never have beat, you know, the bike infrastructure was unremarkable. It was just a thing that everyone used to go to the shops or go to school. It wasn't, you know, right. less like selling point for a brunch restaurant. Yeah. And I think it's this kind of thing where it's bigger than just the infrastructure, right? A lot of the places where bicycle infrastructure has been really successful, right? It, are these sort of dense, relatively dense areas, actually not the densest areas, right, where everything was in, is in walking distance, but the areas kind of just beyond there, right, where, um, where there are, you know, shops, places of employment, services, et cetera, et cetera, all sort of within reasonable biking distance or maybe long walking distance, right? Um, but too short to really merit a, a trip on a bus or a train, right? Or, and, you know, short enough that maybe some of us would feel a little bit silly getting in the car to go do it, right? So that, that kind of zone is also not terribly common in the United States, right? A lot of those places got destroyed to build highways, right? Or got destroyed to build kind of suburban style shopping malls. Um, and so that's part of their part of their specialness. Um, but going back to the idea of, um, you know, people in, in the places where people were really relying on bicycles, right. That there isn't necessarily infrastructure. It's partially 
a data issue, going back to your data question, right? The way that we collect data on bicycling is people people bicycling to work, right? Um, if people aren't in the workforce or they happen to not have a job, um, that is not counted in the census, right? Even if you bicycle to the train like I do, like if I get to fill out the census, I'm going to fill out train, right? Because that's the bulk of my journey when I commute. Um, and so it skews your perception of where infrastructure might be needed if you're using data toward places that where people are commuting by bicycle, right? Um, rather than, you know, commuting is only a quarter to a third of all trips, right? Rather than all the other trips that we, we don't know about, right? And sometimes we measure them with passive measurement, like pressure sensors in the streets, sometimes active measurement, like people doing bicycle counts on particular days, right? There's a whole history of that. Now we're using Strava, but then we're getting a small, like we're getting a very rich data set about a small subset of cyclists and hoping that I, that extends to most, if not all cyclists. Um, and then to your question, sorry, then the, and I'll, I'll pause, right? To your question about the um, the 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 data question, right? How how deadly or how dangerous are various streets that don't have uh, bike lanes? There is a big problem of the the missing denominator, right? We don't know how many people cycle, so we don't know the rates of injury uh, on these particular roadways in the way in the same way that we do know car volumes and can have a better sense of the rates of injury uh, in, based on collisions, right? But you, you do see clusters of collisions in places where, um, you know, where there are large roads meeting, where basically no, very few, if any, traffic engineers would sign off on taking away some of that car capacity to, to create more safety for cyclists. And of course, those, those kind of compound, those factors kind of compound, right? You maybe have an industrial area, it's a big interface with a large urban arterial or a, an off-ramp to a highway, right? These kind of all go together with, um, with potentially sort of lower, um, lower income area or sort of a lower... Um, less pressure to improve that uh that area yeah so i'm thinking i think when i think about like how the bike movement missed uh, an opportunity to be better i always think about like this moment in 2020 when this man called dijon kizzy was killed by police in la and the the, the incident which, which led to the cops shooting him began because the cops tried to pull him over for running a stop sign on a bike right which is a thing mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of white dudes in spandex do every single day uh, in this country, mm -hmm. and, and not a not a word was was spoken by the bike movement, at least that I saw, um, by bike folks, you know, in in sort of solidarity or or opposition to what what had happened. Right? It, it just it it was just an, another thing that that went mourned by thousands of people and ignored by others. So, like, it made me think about like how we build. Maybe it's wrong to think about how we build a better bike movement and, and maybe it's better to think about how we make it unremarkable that you bike, right? We make it like not an identity thing. But 
how do we make cities where people are safe riding bikes, I guess, regardless of whether they're wearing spandex or they're just trying to get to the shops? Yeah, I mean, that's a really kind of an important question. And in, in my research, a lot of people were grappling with that. There was an incident that mercifully didn't result in someone being killed or seriously injured. But, you know, a guy was pulled off of his bike by police, beaten up in San Francisco, and there was a big march afterwards. And some of the some bicycle advocates did show up, but it was not framed as this is something that, you know, is affecting us as cyclists, right? This is, or that affecting some of us as cyclists, right? And an injury to one is an injury to all, right? That's not, that's not, was not the kind of the frame that, that people were, were using to my, from what I could tell, right? Um, And you had bicycle, you know, black bicycle advocates in East Oakland who didn't really frame themselves as bicycle advocates necessarily in the traditional um, or the mold that is sort of determined by the sort of the hegemonically kind of white middle class advocacy organizations, right? Yeah. But they were very much bicycle advocates who, you know, um, a lot of were a lot of a lot of what they did was sort of like teaching people to ride correctly so that they would have fewer interactions with police, right? Or um, kind of managing interactions with with police and you know hopefully becoming well enough known as cyclists that they weren't kind of subject to the kinds of interactions that you know where police end up killing somebody right um now that i live in a place where very few people bicycle to work or for much of anything right i'm thinking a bit more holistically about uh you know, it's now kind of a buzzword, but, you know, a kind of a a more car optional um, city, right? Uh, Where you don't need to have a car to do various things. You know, I'm, I'm involved with bicycle advocates here. But like, when I when I look around, I see like a bus stop that is a stick in a median, right? There's no bench, there's no sidewalks to get to it. There's no crosswalks or anything like that. And I mean, I think that one of the bigger, one of the bigger questions is to make a place that's safe for cyclists, safe for people walking, safe yeah. for people walking their bikes or safe for people walking to transit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is reducing the kind of the space and the, the way that space and speed go together, right. That are devoted to cars. And, and a lot of that is like, um, reducing the, the, the distances that people need to travel, right. For various things. Right. And this gets into the sort of the 15 minute city stuff, which is like, it's been really wild to see it being turned into this like QAnon type, <laughs> you know, a, agenda 21 un black helicopters type of conspiracy theory <laughs> right um, yeah. because i think of it as a very kind of milk toast uh type of policy framework that's honored in the breach right sort of like complete streets yeah. there's a carve out for unless a traffic engineer says it's not really feasible and then we won't really question that judgment we just won't do it right so um i mean i do think it's bigger than modes of transport are really bigger than people's individual decisions or even like what 
the sort of once you are in your mode of transport, what the sort of behavioral matrix is, right? It's sort of like what what does your life consist of, right? Um, what what do you do to like preserve your dignity with your coworkers, right? All of these kinds of things yeah. that feed people towards towards driving, except in yeah. you know very specific places that you know have be- yeah. have become special in the United States. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to say, right? It is really. It, it's much bigger than than bicycling. Um, it's the sort of the the built environment. And I think one of the things that what I land on in the book, maybe belatedly, right? Because these 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 things take years. Is um, is this the way that bicycling is still kind of this interstitial um, solution, right? It's sort of like kind of picking up scraps here and there in the built environment, right? It's like picking up some of the loose ends, right, in how cities are organized that makes them frustrating, difficult to navigate, right? Um, And, you know, I think a lot of the energy, not exclusively, certainly, and bicycle advocacy has become much more diverse in part through, like, listening to a lot of the voices of advocates of color and, and, uh, women advocates and, you know, um, kind of thinking beyond that sort of stereotypical, you know, not just the, the middle-aged man in Lycra, but like the, the sort of middle-aged guy on a surly, right. You know, that, that maybe successor to the middle-aged man in Lycra, right. I'm certainly calling myself out. 
Um, but the, it's still very kind of an interstitial thing, right? Um, it's, and the thing about the, uh, the urban transportation systems in the United States is that they leave a lot of interstices, right? There's a lot of areas that are poorly served by anything but cars and honestly poorly served by cars, you know, in, in Oakland, you had people, a lot of the sort of the, maybe not anger, but certainly annoyance at, at bicycle advocacy and bicycle infrastructure um, would be, and I think you see this in Portland too, where it's like, well, we've been asking for sidewalks. We've been asking the city to, to like fill these potholes. And instead there's these bike lanes that people who just got here are asking for, right? And so maybe that's a failure of solidarity on people coming, you know, people moving to a neighborhood. They, they're like, why is it so torturous to get somewhere by bike rather than kind of maybe stopping and saying, all right, what, what's, what have people been demanding here before I got yeah. here, right? Um, and how can I sort of contribute to that as well and sort of kind of merge our agendas potentially? Um, but it is this sort of, it's, a, it's an interstitial um, solution, right? And so for, for me, you know, the bigger, the bigger questions are sort of what, what role will bicycles play when we start to really take seriously the, the kind of broader urban structure. So you don't have these sort of islands of bikeability inside a sea of automobility, right? Um, do you have a situation where it actually becomes more practical to walk and take transit than it is to bike? Right. I would call that a, that a win. Right. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a degree to which we can get fixated on, on the particular mode of transport. I think, cause we all kind of like fell in love with bicycles and that was the sort of the, the, um, the gateway drug into thinking about like transport and cities and how people move around and, and the sort of the history of urban planning. Right. So, um, I mean, these are all, I don't know if I really kind of offered anything that sort of puts it all together nicely. Right. Um, but the idea that it really does need to become normalized and if it actually sort of disappears in the process of being normalized and it stops being a signifier of, environmental yeah. rectitude or something like that. And, you know, if I could walk to a grocery store instead of having to bike to a grocery store, I would prefer that honestly, where I am right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I love cycling. Yeah. Right. And it's something that I'll, I'll never stop doing. Right. So I think kind of thinking more holistically about what kinds of cities we need to have to move beyond, uh, move beyond automobility, both from a, climate perspective and a social justice perspective um, and just a, almost like a thermodynamic perspective. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that maybe that's the moving up to the level of physics is where <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. one, one kind of place to end. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's very good. Yeah. Is there anything you'd, uh, you'd like to plug maybe uh, where people can find your book, where people can follow you online and I think like that, any sort of, projects you're interested in sure yeah so um my you can find me on twitter i'm at j-o-s-t-e-h-l-i-n um my book is now it's a few years old it's 2019 with university of minnesota press it's all it's called uh cyclescapes of the unequal city um 
And my latest work, I'm actually looking at um, the politics of highway removal. Uh, so maybe scaling up in terms of infrastructure, thinking about sort of bigger, the kind of the great clanking gears of, of urbanism rather than, you know, this little tiny uh, stretch of pavement on the side that's, that's full of glass and car doors and stuff like that. So, but of course, they all kind of fit together. The sort of what are the, what, how does the, the fabric of the built environment have to change in order to grapple with climate change inequality um, and sort of making a sort of a more human type of city. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for giving us some of your afternoon, John. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and it was a really fun conversation. Hi, podcast fans. It's me, it's James. And it's just a tiny little pickup that I wanted to add to the end of this episode because I neglected to mention that Cyclista Zine did call out uh, the police killing of Dijon Kizzy very explicitly and had an excellent piece on it, uh, as they do on lots of other things. They are incredibly wonderful, and you can find them at Cyclista Zine, C-Y-C-L-I-S-T-A-Z-I-N-E.com. Uh, they are not representative of the rest of the bike media, so well worth looking at if you like bikes and uh, not the police murdering people. They're a wonderful publication. Okay, thanks. Bye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.